Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a show about what a freer and fairer future could look like. Last episode, I talked with Carrie McDonald about the pandemic-induced mass national experiment in homeschooling and how much of that we could expect to stick once life returns to something approximating normal. But I think the education sector that I've seen the most dire predictions about, it's not primary or secondary ed, it's higher ed. There's still a great amount of uncertainty about whether universities will even reopen in the fall, and that's putting immense pressure on hundreds of colleges in poor financial shape to reopen regardless, although whether or not students will show up, even if they do, remains an open question. The specter of accelerated college closures and even thousands of laid-off faculty has folks questioning the future of higher ed in America. But what if those closures might actually be a good thing for the state of higher ed? That's the controversial position of our guest today. If you're looking for a provocative take on higher education, you need look no further than Brian Kaplan. Brian's an economist at George Mason University, affiliate scholar at Cato and the Mercatus Center, and the author of The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. It's always nice when an uh, author doesn't beat around the bush with their book title. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we'll get to your predictions about COVID-19 here in a bit, but your book came out in 2018. What was wrong with higher education and long before the pandemic hit? And uh, was that what you were responding to with this book? Right. So I don't even just say higher education. I say all education, really. So the problem that I see with education as it exists is that students spend an enormous amount of time studying material that they will never need to know in real life material that they quickly forget in any case. And again, this is a problem I see from a social point of view. So it's not that the education doesn't get you a better job. It does. But I say the reason is not that you're learning useful skills most of the time, but rather that education is what we call a signaling method. It's a way of impressing employers, showing that you're better than the rest of the pack. And I say that's most of what education is. It's a way for people to jump through a lot of meaningless hoops in order to end up at a nice job at the end. The catch, though, is that this only works for an individual. An individual can enrich himself by showing off without actually acquiring skills, but a society cannot get rich uh, based upon everyone showing off. You've got to actually acquire real skills. So I say that the system is stable in general because it does work, for uh, selfishly speaking, but it's not a good system because it's such a waste of social resources and effort. Now, this view of education as uh, social signaling uh, to future employers, that's contrasted in the book with what you call human capital purism. What, what's that? Yeah, so human capital purism is a fancy name for a view that is in almost all education propaganda, and it's this. You go to school, and they pour lots of great skills into you, and then you learn those skills, and then when you're done, you take those skills and you offer them in the marketplace, and employers reward you because you are now skilled. All right, this is a view that you get from teachers and parents, but you, all, you also get it from most economists. Most economists realize, all right, well, that's not the only possible story, but still it's the story that they like. Uh, so and again, like, as to why economists like the story so much, I really think it is because they like to think of the world as being functional and efficient and working. And so when they see that the system works for the individual, they are very hasty to say it's a good system overall, even though really economists ought to know better. Hmm. Uh, so so well, puncture some holes in the human capital purist position for us. Right. So again, just to be clear, I'm not, I am not. do not say that people learn zero useful skills in school. Every now and then someone says, well, Brian says no one ever learns any useful skills, but th some people learn reading. So Brian's wrong. I guess yeah. I, I'm aware <laughs> of the teaching of reading. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I do say is if you just – first of all, just take a look at the time that people spend on different subjects – a lot of the time is not spent on literacy or numeracy or anything that students are likely to use in the future. So we spend a lot of time on social studies, on art, on music. And this is material that hardly anyone will ever use in real life. Uh, now, again, you could say, well, it's useful for some other purposes. But even there, it should puzzle you. Why does it matter in the labor market whether or not you went and learned social studies or history? Why would your employer actually care? And the signaling story can explain that. And the regular one can't. Uh, so just besides this basic disconnect between what people study and what people actually do in real life, there are a lot of other very suspicious signs. So 
One of my favorite one is just the way that students look for easy A's. Like if you're trying to learn skills, you don't want the easy A's, you want the teachers that pour a lot of skills into you. And yet students seem much more concerned with, with their grades than actually acquiring material. Or, you know, just another sign is think about how much material you have forgotten after the final exam and you're not panicking about it. You're like, oh my God, I forgot trigonometry. What's going to happen? What will become of me? Instead, almost everyone feels like, well, I got my A on the final exam in trigonometry and now I never need to worry about it again. And that's what's weird. <laughs> that is odd. Well, it, it's this rat race where the hustle to get into colleges, get into the highest ranked, most elite school that you can plausibly get into your reach school. But then once you're in, find the most reliably easy classes. Yes, yes. I mean, of course, with the proviso that you want to do like the easiest version of multivariate calculus you can. <laughs> right. 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 So if it's really obvious you did something easy for your transcript, that's bad for you. But if you could have the appearance of having done incredibly demanding material, but you found the easiest you know, theory of relativity teacher on earth and got an A-plus from them, that's ideal. Because mm -hmm. well, you still need a particular set of courses for your right. imagined career. I mean, so – but yeah. within that, there's some leeway and you can see it showing up on the margins, I suppose. Yeah, but only, you know, a lot of it is to get the foot, your foot in the door. I mean, my favorite slogan actually to explain the book – it didn't make it in the book because I thought of the slogan later – my favorite slogan is, school is not job training. It's a passport to the real job training, which happens on the job. So I, I do actually like to nest it in three ways. When I say, you know, first of all, what people learn in school isn't very relevant to the real world. Mm -hmm. Second of all, what people learn, they rarely remember. And mm -hmm. then third of all, what they remember, they rarely apply even when it is relevant. So there's this whole literature and educational psychology called transfer of learning where they just show that even when you abstractly know something that is relevant to a problem, the odds that you would really apply it, the odds that you would actually dust off the Pythagorean theorem when you're trying to fit a door into a door frame, very low. And so when you multiply these three different problems with education, you really see how little we're accomplishing intellectually, although this doesn't mean that you don't want to be there because it is the system our society uses for rationing access to good jobs. Now, you have a nice metaphor that I think puts this in practical terms, which is you're attending a concert and you have to make the decision whether or not to stand up to see what's happening on the stage better. Could you flesh that out for us? Yeah, sure. All right. So everyone's sitting down at a concert. You want to see better. What do you do? Obviously, you stand up. Therefore, if everyone stands up, everyone sees better, right? You're wrong. All right. This is a logician's classic example of the fallacy of composition. And I say that the effect of education on your career is largely like that. If one more person gets a, another degree, that person likely gets a better job. But if the entire society gets an additional degree, the result is that employers jack up the requirements for not having your application thrown in the trash. Um, there is a great phrase for this. So, so it's something that's called credential inflation. Credential inflation. So just like with regular inflation, one person, you know, the government prints off a pile of money and gives it to me, I'm rich. Government prints off a giant pile of money, and gives it to everyone, just raises prices, and the and the change was not actually worthwhile for anybody. And I say the same thing goes with education. One more person gets a credential, great for them. But if we just start showering society credentials, this is not a rich society. It would, of course, if you were learning useful job skills. You can enrich a society if people get more skills. But if all that you do is make people jump through more hoops, the result is just that people waste more years of their lives, right? And what's striking is that when researchers have tried to empirically measure how bad is this credential inflation, most of the people doing it, by the way, are sociologists, not economists, because economists are not into this idea that much, only a few. But anyway, the usual result you get is something like 80% of the rise in years of education since World War II boil down to this credential inflation. Only 20% looks wow. like an upscaling of the population. Which is going to make sense. I mean, I, I went and earned a PhD in history, but once upon a time, you know, you read older history books written by well-regarded historians. It was not uncommon to find people with masters in history doing everything someone with a PhD in history does today. Um, and that's that's common, right? Like the, the PhD is the old MA, you know, kind, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's funny is that the evidence of credential inflation is especially obvious in academia because now there are so many PhDs that barely get you anywhere. 
and yet academics still don't like this idea, right? And you know, and what's especially striking to me, actually, so I, this is something else that I should have mentioned. Uh, a lot when you go and look at the data, a very large share of the payoff for education seems to come from graduation, from crossing the, these seemingly arbitrary finish lines, right? And if you're learning, if you're getting paid just for skills, this is weird. But if you're getting paid for showing off, this makes a lot of sense because if our society says it's really important to finish, the people that make the effort to finish thereby show that they are the kind of people who really care about this society's definition of success. And again, it's bizarre to me that academics of all people would be skeptical of this because every person who's ever supervised a dissertation leans on the student to get it done. So you've got to defend the dissertation. You've got to go through the hoops or else this whole effort was for naught. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if it was skill acquisition, you would expect every additional year would increase your, you know, career opportunities and income. So, you know, if, if someone who who finished who stopped uh, ABD would have better opportunities than someone who stopped after one year. But it doesn't yeah, matter uh, nearly as much as you'd expect. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, of course, you're you're always free to torture the facts in order to squeeze them into your theory. So you could say, well, it just turns out that schools withhold all the useful information until senior year, right? <laughs> yeah. So that is logically consistent with the facts, but it's a joke, yeah. right? Everyone yeah, yeah. who's ever been in school knows that senior year is goof-off year, not finally learn some useful job skills year. Yeah, yeah. You, you would expect a smooth curve, and even if, there, even if the senior year was slightly more valuable, you would expect the curve to be smoother than it is. And, and that, I mean, the other thing I think it will – it naturally makes sense to those um, who have kids on the hunt for, um, for you know, college application season who, you know, what is required on your transcript or, or on your, your – you know, CV resume for a college application today versus 20 years ago is light years different. You have that kind of credentialing inflation in like extracurriculars, the number of AP courses, et cetera. I mean, so we're seeing that inflation, that kind of credential inflation at every stage of the educational process, it seems to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, how do we get here? How in America – I mean I, I know you're an economist by trade, but while doing this book, you, you must have come across some kind of explanation, some background history. How did the four-year liberal arts degree become the gold standard, the default expectation for the middle class? What's responsible for that? There are a lot of things going on, right? I mean especially you can go back over a century and you can see that – Education as it was then is actually very similar to how it is now, only back then the students probably were better, and so it was more realistic to think they could actually do the work. So you know, a lot of what happens right now in colleges is that professors begin with what they traditionally expected of college students, and then they just dumb it down to the point where their students can pass. All right, But in terms of what happened, I'd say you know, there's multiple things at work. Uh, so the one that I talk about a lot is just government subsidies because, you know, government has done a lot to make college affordable, right? And, of course, they've done a lot even to make high school affordable. So in earlier times, you might have to pay for that. And so that's a, one big factor is just that government has made it cheap enough so that most people can do it, again, through a combination of subsidies and loans and a lot of other things. And the cheaper it is, then the worse it looks if you don't do it. So back when college was just a finishing school for rich kids – there was very little stigma against someone who didn't go to college. But now, you don't go to college, well, why didn't you? And you could say, well, we didn't have the money, but well, there's a lot of ways you could have gotten the money together, scholarships, loans, you know, like everything else. So there's that. Uh, now, I don't want to say that government is the only reason, because it you know, definitely is not. Part of it is just the society's gotten richer, and when you've got more money, then you are have more resources to shower on your kids. So there's that. Uh, then, you know, I think there has just been a general transformation of attitudes, although that I tend to think of as not being that much of an independent variable. So the thought experiment that I like to offer is this one. Imagine that it just became completely understood that college provided zero economic or career benefit. All right. How much would attendance fall? <laughs> right, and I said, my story is it would fall a lot immediately. Maybe it would fall by twenty five percent, or you know, thirty, forty, fifty percent. But there is enough of a social expectation that a lot of people would keep doing it for a while. But I think that would tend to unravel pretty quickly because there'd be too many successful people skipping, and then the stigma goes down, and more people do it. And the stigma goes down further. 
Uh, so I say that in you know, over the course of, say, 10 years, if the full economic benefit of college went away, then I think that attendance would probably fall 75%. And it really would go back to just being a country club for rich kids. And, you know, and, and of course, really smart kids, too, would probably go with, with scholarships and so on. Uh, so I think that's what's going on. Um, now, the the bit about showering money on kids reminded me. I, I interviewed Alex Tabarrok about his book, Why Are the Prices So Damn High, a little while back. And he blames you know tuition, inflation, higher ed on Baumol's cost disease. I mean, do, do you agree? So I don't think that Alex is entirely wrong, but I think that he really overstates. And in particular, he's not doing the right thought experiment. So I say the right thought experiment is – what would have happened to the cost of the cost of these inputs if demand had been much lower? So you know, basically, you say, well, so like if government goes and pours a lot of money on things, this pumps up demand for the inputs, and then it's going to look like the inputs explain the price. When say actually, it's better to say that if the government to do the thought experiment of what would have happened if the government money went away, right? So I did have have an extended argument with him about this, and. I mean, of course, you you can ask him, but I just didn't think that his answer to the question of what would the price of college be if there were no, or like like, what would spending be if government didn't spend anything? At some times, he seemed to talk as if private spending would match, would 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 make up the difference one for one. Now, Alex is way too good of an economist to actually think that, so I don't know what his real answer is. Yeah, I wish I'd been the fly on the wall for that conversation. That sounds yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah, you're just reminding me of how much I miss Alex because I haven't seen him in two months. Normally, normally, I see him like every day and interrupt his work, but now, yeah, now you don't have that. Uh, yeah, yeah, COVID nineteen. Um, up here, I miss you, Alex. If you're listening, I miss you, brother. I'll let, I'll let him know if if he's not. Um, now, you 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 do mention in the book, so you know it's not all doom and gloom, and you're not anti-education and that that's clear if you actually give the book a good faith reading um oh, what but you, <laughs> that's right well, what's that well, such to be found <laughs> <laughs> not on twitter i'll tell you that not on twitter um but you so y- your alternatives though are well like look government should stop subsidizing uh higher education uh but you do have um uh, an admiration you express in there for vocational educational tra- uh, models of training, like in Germany, for example. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar with what that means, why do you think that and what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so what it looks like in practice is they have standardized testing when you're in, around your early teens. And then if you get a low score on the standardized test, they encourage, though do not require, that you go to a technical school where you learn, where they train you to do a job, right? On the other hand, if you get a high score, a high score, then you're going to go to a something. I mean, it's actually, it's much better than a traditional American high school in terms of how demanding it is, but that's a pretty good idea. So think of it as like the, you know, if you get a good score, then you go to the equivalent of an American honors classes. And if you get a not so good score, then you go to technical school where they still teach you academic subjects, but from the point of view of doing a job. Right. So anyway, and that is, of course, a, lo- a key part of how Germany leads the world in so in things like auto, you know, like like auto mechanics and you know the like the the manufacture of automobiles is they've got a whole industry training young apprentices to do this job to the German standard of quality. Mm-hmm. Now, how does that avoid the signaling problem? I mean, yes, vocational training is very focused on real skills, the pipeline to jobs. I mean, but wouldn't you expect signaling to show up even there? Like that there are different vocational training institutions which signal different things. I mean, they have different brands. Yeah, absolutely. So signaling, you can't not do. There's always signaling. Whatever you do is signaling. But what you cannot do is have people signal by learning something they're never going to use again. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, really, it's not an alternative between a system with signaling without. It's a, it's an alternative between a system that teaches skills and one that doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what, like, so what? You know, technical education gives you signaling and skills, and regular education gives you signaling without skills. So, you know, the way that I like to think about it is just what is the ratio of the two? So, you know, what what is the mix? And I think it's better from a social point of view, not necessarily selfishly, but socially better. Just dial up that skill share of what's going on. Now, 
this reminds me of something else. Um, your position that any given individual should, you know, go to higher ed. I mean, because you, you're not going to change the system by yourself. Um, that's kind of a bit of a suicide charge. But that society as a whole should, um, you know, pull back its its idea about higher education as a, you know as a uh, as as job training, etc. Um, so that that kind of nuanced position there. Individuals should go, but society should pull back from subsidizing higher education. It kind of contradicts in the sense, but agrees with too, in some ways, uh, Peter Thiel's idea, his program to pay high school students to skip college, right? So there he's encouraging individuals to forego higher education, um, which, you know, but yet I think he would agree with you that education is mostly social signaling and a waste of time. So how do you, how do you, uh, you know, uh, paper over that difference? What's your response to Teal's approach? Right. Well, of course, Teal gives them a big, a big bag of money. So that is your incentive to do something that otherwise wouldn't be in your own self-interest. Of course, he also handpicks people and they get this incredible signal of having been a Teal fellow. So that can work just fine for a small number of highly motivated people, but not so well for a large scale. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, now, by the way, so you know, just to get even more nuanced, so you know, my, the, you know, the simple version is, is that I say, you know, college is good for the individual, bad for society. But actually, I also say that if you look more closely, you'll see there are a lot of people currently go where it's probably a bad idea even for them. Essentially, people that did very poorly in high school right now, they get a lot of pressure to go anyway. And yet we know from the data that their odds of successfully finishing college are vanishingly low, particularly if you just have bad, if you're just bad in math. If you were bad in math in high school below the median, the odds that you'll ever get any kind of a – that you ever finish any degree, much less a degree that's likely to get you a good job, is very low. So I do say that for people like that, even selfishly, they're making a mistake by going to college and they should really should be looking into other options. And their parents should be, should be steering them that direction instead of – filling their kids' heads with unrealistic expectations. Hmm. But you got to keep up with the Joneses and that yeah. doesn't happen. Yeah, you know, but you know, like, like ultimately this, you know, if you are, if you live next door to a kid that's going to be a professional basketball player and your kid is pretty good, should you keep up with the Joneses by telling your kid to put everything in the basketball? <laughs> or should you say, no, uh, son, no. yeah, basketball is a great hobby <laughs> and a great way to stay fit and you can always do it, but – you're never going to be a professional basketball player, so don't even think about it. This is a crazy idea. Stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's it's a or, great or or the non-crushing version of that, whatever, however you want to phrase it. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm not your kid right now. Sorry, Brian. Need a good crushing, I'm afraid, because they're just so head in the clouds about what their life prospects are. Yeah, there is a certain kind of uh, maniacal self-confidence. Um, it, 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 it's tough too because there are quite a lot of high achievers, kind of by definition, people who are high achieving, whether in basketball or in many other venue, you know, careers and and uh, venues. They are um, almost insanely self-confident, and if you ask them why they succeeded, that plays a key role. I mean, you, you almost have to be self-deceptively. Self now, of course, there's a survivorship bias or something yeah. where oh, yeah. the ones who succeeded, yeah, they were self confident. But how about the ones who were confident and the you know ninety nine percent who were confident yet failed and uh, suffered because of that? Um, but that's uh, I think that's the, that's the that's we're going up against human psychology here to some extent. Yeah, the question is, if you're advising people, should you throw fuel on the fire of human self destructiveness, or try to, <laughs> or try yeah. to say, stop putting gasoline on that stuff? It's dangerous. Yeah, yeah. You're you've said you've said online. You know, you're a father yourself. You dedicate your book to your homeschooled children. Um, are they college age? How have you talked through the college decision with them? Yeah. So. My older sons want to be college professors, so <laughs> I have a great wealth of knowledge and advice to give them. What I think is time tested and very evidence based. I mean, you know, like I can, like this is the easiest thing for me to advise them to do because I know what this what this occupation is like. Uh, but again, then you know, I also like like my, for me, the heart of homeschooling is tailoring the education to the child. Mm -hmm. So you want to find out. What are the child's aspirations, goals? What do they like? And also, what are their abilities? So, and, and so, what are, what are the odds they could actually succeed in doing what they're doing? Um, so, you know, and uh, and for me, the like the, you know the heart of homeschooling is two parts. First of all, preparation for your future, even if you don't like it. 
and secondly, enjoying your childhood. So and th those two principles mean very different things for different kinds of people. So for my older sons, this means saying, look, well, uh, you may not love math, but econ requires an enormous amount of math, so we're going to do an enormous amount of math. And, and, you know, and also I said, look, you might not want to learn a foreign language. You can't get into a good college without learning a foreign language. So we got to do this stuff, we we'll like it or not. Uh, but then at the same time, I also try to sift through electives and say, look, you don't like art? Fine, we'll never do art because you don't need art in real life and you don't like it. So forget it. On the other hand, they love history. And so for that, not only did we pursue it, even though I said, look, you don't really need history in real life. You don't even need it to be an economist. I did add, you do need to know a lot of history to be a good economist, but uh, there's plenty of bad economists who have great jobs, so, <laughs> so keep that in mind. But, but yeah, so it's something, you know, they liked it a lot, and so we put a lot of time into that, and, you know, partly we're signaling, but we're all, you know, just to say, hey, look, we are the two kids in the country who finished the three history advanced placement tests by ninth grade. I think we were, I think my, I'm, not, I'm not absolutely sure. I know that there were only like 10 kids in the whole country that did the European history test in 10th grade or eighth grade rather. Yeah. So that's a pretty I good signal. That, yeah. I think, I think it, I think it is a good signal, but same time when we were deciding, deciding which signals to send, tried to find something that they really enjoyed and gave their lives meaning. So, and history for them very much is that. Well, they also have, and you make this point in the book, which is if you want, a lot of these skills are only valuable if you want to teach them yourself. I mean, yourself someday. So if, if you know, history, I'm a historian, history is most valuable to someone who wants to be a history professor, yes. right? Yeah, and uh, in this Although case, even, even yeah. they, of course, don't really need to know a broad area of history, because the way you get tenure is by maxing out your research in some narrow area. Right? I mean, I, I remember I was talking to some history professors, like, so what is taught in the first year of history PhD programs right now? Do you give them a survey of world history? And these ones I talked to said, God, no. It's like, so then when do they learn world history? Like, well, either on their own or never. Right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. the amount of on-the-job training you actually do as a history graduate student, where it you, you base you know, hey, uh, you know, the tenure professor doesn't want to teach the big world history survey, so they slough it off on a you know on ABDs, um, and you just as long as you're one lesson ahead of the, the undergrads, you're. Uh, <laughs> but again, it doesn't matter because undergrads aren't learning history because they need to learn history for the future. They're just checking the box, looking for the easy. Gen Ed credit, et cetera, right? So, yeah, so I mean, um, I mean you know, to, to, to avoid despair, I try to teach to the students that are motivated. Uh, and you know, there, there almost always are a few. So, you know, don't give up on humanity. But on the other hand, there's a whole lot who are just as you described. So let's turn to higher education in the age of COVID-19. Um, depending on what you count, I think there's like four to 5,000 colleges in the United States a lot of them were already under severe financial pressure uh, leading up till 2020. I mean, declining student enrollment and, and so on. Um, so like with that landscape in place, what do you think the best and worst case scenarios for college education um, are after COVID-19 burns through? Right. So just to slightly amplify what you're saying, the, so the last time I looked at the data is so like the enrollment of 18 to 24 year olds in traditional four year colleges has continued to rise actually. Oh, has it? Okay. Yes. Uh, but you're absolutely right that some colleges are in great trouble. Basically, these are the colleges where I don't understand why they existed in the first place. These are mediocre, expensive private colleges where I don't care what the decade is. Why does anyone go there? I don't understand. But obviously, the, a lot of people do. So, like, you know, like part of it is their parents went there, but they're like, well, then why did their parents go there if it was just a mediocre private college that costs a lot of money? What's the point? So, anyway, uh, there are a bunch of colleges like that, and they have, they, and you know, a lot of them have indeed been in trouble. And it's plausible that COVID nineteen will put quite a few more out of business. Although, even there, like, like every time a college shuts, it's huge news. It's not like a restaurant shuts down. They're a lot more. They they have much better survival probabilities than that. Um, so anyway, you know, so I would know, I'd say is that it probably accelerates the, the the trend, which is not that college is in any way declining. It's not, but rather there's a shift away from the expensive, low prestige schools that shouldn't really exist in the first place. You might say over towards places that are either more prestigious or that are just more affordable. 
you know, particular like your standard you know, state college systems, you know, for most people, those really are their very best bet. And yet there have been people that have burned through piles of money to send their kid to a school that is no more selective than the public school they could have gotten into. And it costs five times as much. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So we'd see a consolidation in, in higher education that yeah, the yeah. Yeah, which, which state is, schools are ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, I mean, you, you put yourself in the kind of an accelerationist camp rather than uh, this being some truly yeah. unprecedented crisis. Right. Okay. And, I, and I wouldn't even put myself very firmly in that. So, uh, you know, I think the most likely scenario is that within a year, things are back to normal. Mm. Right? Oh, really? And, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, or let me put it this way. Either they're back to normal or it becomes the new normal where people are just willing to live normal lives again, more or less. So, you know, so, you know, mankind lived with diseases much worse than this for almost all of the, of the history of civilization, right? So, like, diseases this bad were just endemic for most of human history. We just live with them uh, indefinitely. And, you know, like, I mean, even I remember back when, like, measles and chicken pox were not weird things to get. So, yeah. I, mean, I had I, I had some of these diseases back in the 70s. So, again, you know, like, the, those were rarely fatal, but still... You know, like we just gotten quite spoiled and the best way to get people to be less spoiled is to take away what was spoiling for a while and see how they adapt. I think people will just lose patience with this, especially since the you know, most people really are at super low risk. It's, you know, it's the you know, danger is very heavily concentrated among the old and people with prior health problems. Yeah, I'm sure the pressure for schools to reopen in the fall will just continue to grow. Um yeah. Yes. And also people are so conformist. So, I mean, right now, you know, there are a whole lot of families that are keeping their kids totally locked down in my area and probably all over the country. And yet I think it's very likely that if schools send an email saying we're reopening schools next week, that half of the parents would send their kids back because they're conformist. And once people found out that half of people were doing it, there'd be a bunch more that would do it after, you know, in the, ne in the next couple of weeks. Though the counter argument against this would be all the data that's been coming out showing that people started social distancing before the shutdown orders, right? They stopped going to restaurants, like all the open table data and stuff, um, which I, I suppose you can still make a conformist argument. They're following. Yeah, 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 ab absolutely conformist argument. Yes. Very few people were doing this initially. I remember I was one of the first people wearing a mask on a plane and people were looking at me like I had my, I had two heads. <laughs> well, yeah, when I, I walked onto a crowded transporter bus at Dallas with my mask, I think it was the only one on that entire thing with like hundred people on it with the mask, and people were scared, were frightened of me back then. But you know, a week later, I bet a lot of those people were doing that. But here's the other thing: even when it is, you know, if people are doing it based upon individual choice, that doesn't mean they don't get fatigue. Right. And I think that's something that the law is actually doing a lot of right now is it's not that it started the caution. It's prolonging the caution past the point where people would throw in the towel. And you can actually see this when people border a state that opens up. People from surrounding states go into the state. Right. Which which I think shows very clearly that the law is binding in the states where the, that are keeping it. Not, not, not nowhere near perfectly, but still. Now, back to social signaling and education a bit here. I live in New Jersey, live right near Princeton University. Uh, a lot of Ivy League schools have followed with um, other higher education schools in doing like hiring freezes. Um, some have laid off uh, temporary faculty and staff, uh, uh, raise freezes and the like, um, which you – know, these are schools with very large endowments. I mean, the kinds of schools that could continue to to stay open almost you know for decades potentially. Um, without doing these kinds of measures. And, and I, so I wonder what's going on there in a signaling sense, because like, wouldn't there be a signaling deficit? Like if you're an elite school, wouldn't you want to kind of, in a sense, brag about the size of your financial resources, the size of your endowment by going against what other schools are doing? Like while other schools are, are no longer hiring faculty, we're going to bring on new faculty while other schools are doing um, pay freezes. We're going to keep uh, raising salaries. Yeah. So why does the signaling encourage even elite schools with large endowments to respond in this way to the pandemic? Yeah. So you might remember that old saying, all politics is local politics. 
Similarly, I would say that a lot of signaling is local signaling. <laughs> so, you know, like, you know, people that, that are managing a university, sure, they care about their overall image and what other schools say about them. But the thing that matters most to them is what other people at their own school are saying about them. They care a lot about what the Board of Governors or Board of Visitors or whatever you call it says about them. They care a lot about what the other administrators at their school say. Right. And this works in, uh, in, you know, in multiple in, in you know, two directions. So one of them is if you've got a really good idea for making your school better, but it's going to make people at your own school mad, you tend not to do it. Right. So like I have long been saying we should go and fire the you know, <laughs> fire or you know, push out people who don't do research anymore and are and, and have gotten to be and are so old that they're bad teachers replace them with enthusiastic graduate students. Yeah, but if yeah. I were a college president. I would realize this is going to get my head chopped off probably. Like, <laughs> what do I get out of it? So why should I try doing that? Right. So it works that way when you got things to when you're away, away improving things. But on the other hand, when there's expectations of taking precautions, then again, you you probably just want to go go with the flow. Right. So and again, especially since these are nonprofits, you're running a for profit business. You can get ahead by by being the, the jerk that does, that makes the hard choices that make the company rich. But if you are running Harvard, you don't get there because you're the master making hard choices. You get it because you're a master of going along to get along. Hmm. Hmm. Right? As Larry Summers learned to his chagrin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm right. sure Larry knew, but uh, he was just being Larry. Good for him. <laughs> so despite this, despite the kind of conformity here, I mean, do you still think all of this raises the relative value of an Ivy League degree versus a non-Ivy League degree? No. I tend to think it's a little bit in the other direction because – Right now, there actually are some students that want to go to those very elite schools because they get this wonderful four-year experience, educational experience, and those students are now are going to be are, go, are going to be more likely to say, eh, "I might as well just go to UVA." Right. So you know, basically, you know, like, like you know, under in our normal circumstances, if you get into Princeton or UVA and you're highly motivated then it really makes sense to go to Princeton because you get this really great intellectual experience or let me put this way, you have access to it. You're allowed to get it if you really want it at Princeton. But now Princeton really can't offer that. Now, this doesn't mean that Princeton loses all of its shine, but at the margin it is, I, I, I think it's very likely making people that were weighing, just is it really worth all this extra tuition to go to say, eh, given that I won't even be on campus Probably not. And as long as the ones that are more likely to turn you down are the are the exceptional students, it does very slowly bring down the quality of the Princeton signal. Hmm, interesting, right? But, now, I, but I mean, I think it's slight, and yeah. there, there's a lot of of inertia in these signals. I mean, you may have remembered that. Let's see, I think, remember. I think I think there's there was a survey along the lines of. Someone asked law professors to rate the Penn State Law School, and it turns out there is no such law school, but they had no trouble rating it. <laughs> I, could be, I could be wrong on the exact school, but the general point is people – the school didn't even exist, and still people rated it just based – well, I guess Penn State, it would be like 55. <laughs> That's funny. Well, well, Princeton doesn't famously have law school or med school. Like they don't do professional schools, so I could see that happening there too. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's even been uh, you know some 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 something where they ask people to rate the Princeton Law School, and then yeah, yeah, people are like, well, it must be great. Law professors would know it doesn't exist, whereas Penn State <laughs> would not know. Yeah, well, Penn State didn't, and then they bought one at some point. So, okay, you know, some yeah, one of the consolidation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, the story. This story is meant to be truthy, not true. It's good. It's a good story, though. It's a good story. I believe it. I totally believe it. Um, uh, now, on this point um, of blending the kind of signal and practical, uh, I, I just saw a piece in the New York Mag by Scott Gall about about Scott Galloway, who's a marketing professor, made a bunch of like kind of semi accurate predictions over the last couple of years about like we work. It's it's you know decline and the like, but he just predicted that elite schools and big companies will forge partnerships like Harvard X Facebook or I Stanford, and that will transition to mostly remote university education. Um, what do you think of that proposition? Um, he, Galloway's got some interest himself because I think he's invested in a uh, remote learning kind of startup. Uh, does that seem believable to you? Slightly more believable than before, but still no way. So here, here's the thing. What is it that education signals? So the obvious answers are, well, it shows you're smart, but then it's not just that. All right, it also shows that you're hardworking enough to get through the program. 
But I think there's a third thing that you're signaling in education, and that is just conformity, just showing that I understand what society expects of me and I'm going to comply. All right. And whenever you're signaling conformity, this builds in a lot of lock-in. Like, why is the suit the right garment for business? There's nothing in the structure of the universe that makes it so. It's just so because you're trying to show that you're conforming to the social norm. And it, that was the norm of the past. We didn't know that was the norm. It was the norm of the past because it was the norm of the past before that and so on. Now, in the very long run, these things do change, but they have a lot of staying power. Right. And that and I think that very much goes for education. I remember, you know, over ten years ago, I you know, I was talking with Alex Tabarrok and he was making predictions about online education making big inroads and possibly possibly costing us our jobs. And I probably just laughed in his face. And <laughs> which, which is one of my uh, one of my habits. But anyway, I, I, I said, Well look, Alex, you know, when, like when your son is ready to go to college, are you gonna let him go to an online school? And Alex just blurted out, like, no son of mine exactly. And because a lot of other parents will feel the same way, the best students are going to tend to go to traditional schools, which means there'll be a stigma against people who do the online schools, which doesn't mean that they won't exist or that they won't grow, but they're going to grow slowly and they're not going to do so. They're, they're, not, they're not going to be a really viable competitor to existing schools. And if you look at the online education that's happened, normally the way that it works is that you take an online class at your college which saves almost no money when you think about it. So if you could actually have a student simply not go to a physical college at all, that saves a lot of resources. But if you go to a regular school and then one out of your classes you take from your dorm room, that saves almost nothing. And that's the, the, you know, the main kind of online education that's going on, right? I mean, on top of all of this, I think that testing any new idea during an emergency biases people against it for, and for a long time. So, you know, like a lot of homeschoolers are really excited about this. I don't think this crisis is very good for homeschooling because you're forcing it on people in desperate circumstances when they don't feel ready and they're not going to come away generally thinking, oh, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is interesting in the conversation with Carrie. Um, it, it, there is some polling uh, that she pointed to, which suggests that 50% of folks say this has given them a more bullish or you know more positive view of homeschooling. Um, but you know, the, there is still open. The question is what there is, what is what most folks are doing actually homeschooling or is it remote education? You know, or you're following a school curricula, you're doing it yourself, or you're more of a proctor than a teacher. I don't know. What do you think as someone who homeschools, I'm sure you have coworkers or, or friends of the family who are in contact with, who are being forced into remote education. Does it remind you I mean, of what you do as a homeschooling parent? I mean, what I do is so unusual that only a very few other things remind me of it. Um, so, I mean, actually, I, I have actually doubled enrollment in my homeschool because my younger kids were in regular school until two months ago. Ah, so, okay. yeah. So, you know, like for them, it's more of an emergency. But I did, I was able to, you know, to you know, to dust off you know, some of the stuff that I'd done earlier. Although, you know, there I just needed to adapt it for very, kids with very different personalities. So, you know, like, you know, the you know, younger kids, first of all, they're just younger than I ever homeschooled before. So their attention span just lower, but they're just less studious. And so I need to come up with something that's for this for them. And, and also just try to find what electives interest them because of you know, what their brothers like, the younger, younger ones often don't like. Yeah. Now, uh, back to this, uh, you know, um, the, it's been about a decade now, but you know, it wasn't that long ago when MOOCs, when massive open online courses were, you know, real high up in the hype cycle. Uh, that was going to disrupt higher ed, and you know, et cetera. What, what you were describing, Alex saying um, that that bubbles popped to some extent. It's it's it feels dated to hear, you know, it would feel dated to hear someone say that today. Um, and and I think part of that reading your book makes sense, which is the open aspect of it. The 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 first O, like when it's open, it removes a lot of the social signaling component because anyone can do it. So where's the signal value if anyone can take this course? But even if you take the O out, so if it's just a massive online course, why haven't those boomed? I mean, schools do have them at Penn State. I actually taught one, but they were still significantly less popular than in-person classes. So why haven't we seen more of a transition to the mock instead of the MOOC? Right. So a bunch of things going on. 
one thing, so when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, they had self-paced calculus, right? And some other self-paced classes. And these, this is really before there's anything online, you just get a book and you do the problems. Then you come into a testing center, take the tests. This was not popular. And the main problem seemed to be that most people were both didn't trust themselves and thought that if they did it that way, they would get Fs. And out of the ones that did it, it was very common for them to get Fs because people, a lot of people just procrastinate. So I did it. It was work fine for me. But for most people, they have the self-knowledge to realize I'm just barely going to be doing any work if I'm just by myself somewhere. So I think that is one big part of it. You know, obviously you can go and try tweaking the system in order to get around that, but it, but it is a serious problem there. Another one, you know, people are just generally sociable, so they, you know they would rather see other people than just be by themselves. So so there's that, right? And then finally, of course, once you're already on campus, then the marginal cost of going to a class is pretty low. And then you know, and then you know, finally, some things that people are seeing in the last couple of months is that video conferencing still isn't that great. Right. You know, like it's like the technology often doesn't work and there's sound distortion and you have to ask people to repeat things. So just in terms of the pure tech, it's uh, still subpar. Uh, but, you know, even in terms of being able to pick up on people's body language and so on. I mean, for me, one of the main th- piece of advice that I always give to teachers is to look at the students faces instead of your notes. Look at their body language, see whether they're reacting, ask questions to find out whether or not the students understand what you're saying. And that is a lot harder with online education. Of course, so many so many teachers pay so little attention to their students that they're not losing much because they're throwing away the important information all the time. But still, you know, like it's probably some slight adjustment in your behavior when every face in the classroom looks blank. Now, I, I'll ask here uh, in, in closing to some extent that – so the pandemic, it looks like it might depress college enrollment, at least in this fall, uh, even if it bounces back in the spring or, or next year. Um, the you know rising unemployment will likely depress tax revenue, put a crunch on state and local and federal budgets, potentially, which could lead to less state support for higher education. And as I was thinking about that, it kind of sounds like the virus read your book. I mean, like this exo- is a fan. I mean, this is an exogenous variable that could do the things you called for in your book, even though obviously you would prefer that it was not a virus uh, responsible for it. Um, do you think on net, higher education post pandemic is going to improve because of this or, you know, or, or get worse. Yeah. So I think there'll probably be a little bit less, but the education that goes on will be the same or worse. So that's my, that's my, my general view. And you know, by the way, of course, this is another example of how you don't want your idea to be tested in the middle of an emergency because then you get blamed for all the emergency conditions. You know, it's not the fault of my book that there's, a lot of disease going on in pork processing plants, but <laughs> it, nevertheless, no, it is, Brian. <laughs> nevertheless, people like very well might associate the inavailability of pork unavailability of pork ribs with my stuff, and you know that's not fair. But so, so you know, like yeah. I, you know, I, I, I always want my ideas to be tried when everything's awesome. And then, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we have extra pork, and it's because of Brian. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, well, either that, this was the same thing when there was the uh, government shutdown a few years back, and uh, there was a um, uh, there was a, uh, a bacterial outbreak, some sort of you know food poisoning outbreak with I think romaine lettuce, and everyone said, "Aha, libertarians! That's what happens. You get what you want. No government, and you you know, you have uh, people dying from food poisoning." It was like, "Hey, come on, guys! That's not." This is not a fair testing situation of, you know, um, so so I, I feel your pain there. Uh, so maybe you have some uh, – this is just off the top of my head here. But do you have some something you would say to uh, young college-bound folks who thought they were going to be heading to college in the fall? They're uncertain about what they should do. Um, they're worried about, you know, the potential for internships, uh, fellowships this summer – worried about whether or not their school will be open in the fall. What kind of advice would you give to someone uh, in that situation? I think the first thing that I would say is remember that while this may seem like the most important thing in the in the world forever right now, it's only the most important thing in the world for, for a while. And this is a big life choice that's going to reverberate for many decades. So don't put too much weight on this. 
So I, I think I would say, like, if you were right on the edge, then maybe think about revising your behavior, but otherwise stay the course, right? So, you know, the kind of thing that I would recommend thinking about is if you got into Princeton and UVA and, before, and you were right on the edge now, probably do UVA because you know, so you're going to save a lot of money and you just are getting a lot less out of the Princeton experience now than you would have. Although still, eventually Princeton will reopen and you'll be on campus and you'll get a better signal. So uh, keep that in mind. But again, if you were right on the edge, sitting on the fence, then do the cheaper thing. And again, of course, if your family's having financial troubles, that's an extra reason to do the cheaper thing. Let's see. Other advice. I mean, probably the main thing is when people say that there's going to be a totally new world after this, don't believe them. You know, like things went, got back to normal after World War II. <laughs> things got <laughs> yeah. back to normal after there was massive nuclear weapons proliferation. You know, like at the time you might say no one will want to live in a city when there's a nuclear arsenal, but that didn't happen. So, you know, and, 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 you know, be skeptical of the this time it's different crowds. I mean, of course, once in a blue moon, they're right. But nevertheless, you should not base your life upon that. And then, you know, more generally, just... You look, you know, instead of watching news, which is delivered by people who are generally totally enumerate, go and like, if you know, if you're able to go to college, go to statistical websites and read statistical information about what's really going on. So in particular, what we find is that young people are at very low risk. And so, uh, you know, the the idea that you should be hiding for uh, hiding right now makes very little sense. You know, if your parents are paranoid about it you might want to humor them but on the other hand you know there's only there's a limit to how much you should humor even your parents so if you want to read the case against education it's available very cheap on amazon and of course you could do it by kindle but amazon is great and they're continuing to deliver physical books with no problems as far as i can see so i strongly recommend that you try it out there right and i uh, just want to say you know, it's been a great pleasure to be here on this podcast Right now, I feel so alone in the world that it's a great pleasure just to reach out and talk to people because isolation sucks. I hope you found Brian's argument as intriguing as I did. The post-COVID future of college education in America might just be a little more about actual education and a little bit less about social signaling. In any case, if you're finally getting tired of playing Animal Crossing, be sure to check out his book and give it the old college try. And as always, until next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.